Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, December 3rd, we are studying Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 16. Although Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet, one who spoke often of the judgment that was coming on Jerusalem, one who endured great suffering for the sake of faithfully preaching God's word, Jeremiah is also filled with wonderful image of gospel, of hope, of promise. And today's text is one such image, the righteous branch of David. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Steve Andrews. Pastor Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Good morning. Thanks for having me. As we get started this morning, Pastor Andrews, let's talk context. This is the first text that we've encountered from Jeremiah in this series on these Old Testament readings from the season of Advent. Jeremiah 33, 14 through 16 is the text for the first Sunday in Advent in series C of the three-year lectionary. So let's talk Jeremiah. Let's talk context. What do we need to know about Jeremiah as a prophet, as a book? That will help us with the verses that we've got from chapter 33 today. Sure. As a general overview of the history of God's people, we're at that point where they've already been separated into two different nations. Israel is the northern kingdom and Judah as the southern kingdom. And we've even passed that point where Israel, the northern kingdom, has been destroyed for their lack of faithfulness. And now Jeremiah has been called you know, roughly 629, 628 BC, somewhere in that range, he has been called to be the prophet of God. So the one who speaks God's word to his people in that southern kingdom of Judah. And unfortunately, due to their unfaithfulness, uh, a similar result is coming where they are going to be destroyed by, at this point, it'll be the nation of Babylon that overcomes them. But it's not just then the message of of destruction, of judgment, as you mentioned in the open here, we also have promises of hope that come in this book, a promise of restoration. And we're going to see that in our text today. And so that's a good news gospel kind of message that we get to focus on. Jeremiah also not only is the prophet before they go into exile, which happens in 587 BC, he's also there and he's present for that event to take place which is why he then writes another book of our bible he writes the book of lamentations which is shorter it's only five chapters long but it i mean it's filled with exactly that it's filled with lament he's mourning over the loss of the the nation of god that it's been destroyed for its unfaithfulness Um, very poetic little book as each of the chapters is its own poem and the only good, the only positive is right there in the middle of chapter three. It's it's like the hinge point of the whole book. Uh, and it's the only part of it that also will show up in our lectionary reading system to, to hear together as we gather in our churches. Uh, the rest of the book gets left out of that. So Jeremiah goes into exile or, or experiences that exile to Babylon with the people. But we also know Jeremiah ends up making his way down to Egypt. Um where ultimately a few years after the exile time began, uh, he gets killed by the Jewish people, likely because he was still speaking of the the judgment of God to those Jews that had fled uh, and tried to make it down to Egypt, thinking that they would be in safety uh, from God's wrath. Right. So, I mean, Jeremiah's history is is certainly an interesting one. And just to put it in, in context with where we've been in this series so far, the last two days we've been in Isaiah. And yesterday, actually, we were in Isaiah 64, which... Although Isaiah comes over a hundred years before Jeremiah, that part of Isaiah's book is directed toward those who are in exile in Babylon. So there's going to be some overlapping themes. Isaiah lived 740 BC to about 680 BC. As you said, Jeremiah is going to be in the early 500s BC and and into the the late 600s BC, I suppose, is really where he gets his start with 
under Josiah. And so, you know, his, his ministry is actually happening during the time of the destruction of Jerusalem. And as you said, he sees it, he goes into exile. And I know we're in Jeremiah, but you brought up the book of Lamentations. And I think that's really helpful. The book of Lamentations, as you said, is, is only five chapters long. It's a it's a short read. So, you know, I would encourage anybody to, to read it because it really helps set the context. And as you said, we tend to know just that middle section. I think it's what verses 22 through 33 from Sounds chapter right. three of, of Lamentations, which of course are, are made famous by the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And we actually studied Lamentations in an adult Bible study here at Grace. Oh, it's probably been over a year ago now, and we got to that section. And of course, when you're when you're reading the whole the whole book of Lamentations together, and then you come to the greatest like faithfulness verse, and then you look at the hymn next to it, the hymn writer he, he missed the rest of the book. <laughs> oh, he, he, yeah he he missed the he, he missed the the fullness of the Lamentations. And so here's, but here's why I want to talk about this a little bit, because I think it, it helps. I, I think we have a hard time appreciating just how horrific the destruction of Jerusalem in 587 BC really was and how hard it really hit Jeremiah and the other faithful residents, particularly the faithful residents of Jerusalem and Judah. Their, their whole world was destroyed. When Jerusalem fell, when the temple was ransacked, when they were carried away into exile, absolutely everything that they knew was gone suddenly. I, I don't, I'm not sure a modern day equivalent that that we can compare it to, to to really get the the sense of it. But reading the Book of Lamentations helps because the way Jeremiah describes just the the utter horror that he and the other exiles experienced in watching this. I mean, it really, uh, the reason I think we need to know it is because it really is going to fill the words that we'll read today with just that much more comfort when we see how low they really were in this fall of Jerusalem. I'll let you comment a little bit more on that, Pastor Andrews. That ends up being pretty similar to sometimes how we find ourselves talking about the law and the gospel. You know, the, it's hard for the gospel to do its work if we don't know the law. But the law, which kills us, it shows us our sin. And, it, you know, it, when we know how deep of a sinner we are, it gives us a, a real appreciation of just exactly what it is Jesus did for us on the cross. Uh, so it's a nice pair with the law and gospel playing together like that. And so, yeah, you're describing um, the really what is law and gospel in the lives of these people as they lived it. Right, right. And and so that, that fall of Jerusalem in 587 BC, the destruction of the temple particularly, that's in the background, particularly of the of this text. Again, as, as you said, Jeremiah's got lots of preaching about the judgment that is to come. He preaches ahead of it, telling the people it's coming. Now naturally they don't they don't particularly like that kind of preaching. Most most people don't. <laughs> no, it gets them put in the stocks at least once. That's right. That's right. And thrown into a well once it, it gets his, oh, his scroll gets burned at one point by one of the kings, I believe, who, who doesn't like what Jeremiah has written. So he's got to rewrite it. In fact, again, as I mentioned at the beginning, he's called the weeping prophet because of the great suffering that he endured. And he's he's not afraid of, of pouring out that complaint before the Lord throughout the book. So the, the message of the law is certainly very present in the book of Jeremiah. And as we've been saying, we, you know, we need that to know the full context. But you get these wonderful images of hope that occur throughout the book, particularly more toward the, the latter part of the book in this section that we find ourselves, chapter 33 today, where the Lord does promise to his faithful restoration. And, and particularly today, we're going to see how he promises restoration concerning the line of David. And so the verses that we've got for us today, this is Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. I'm going to read that. And I'm also going to read a little bit farther on because it, it's going to give us more context that will help us understand what Jeremiah is promising here. So Jeremiah 33, 
beginning at verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Okay, that's verses 14 through 16, which is the appointed text, again, for the first Sunday in Advent in series C of the three-year lectionary. Here's a bit more context now in verse 17 of chapter 33. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant David with David, my servant may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers, as the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured. So I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying, the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people, so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with day and night, and the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Now, that was Jeremiah 33. That was verses 17 through 26, which I think provides some helpful context to this thought, this image that Jeremiah puts on our minds of the righteous branch that springs up for David. We're talking about the Davidic line, the king in the line of David. So with all of that read, Pastor Andrews, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. When let's, let's start there. The days are coming. When are these days? What days is the Lord talking about? Well, that's a great question. And one of the things we like to do when we look at the prophecy is to look at something like this. You know, when was this fulfilled or when will this be fulfilled? And oftentimes we, we almost tend to see a, a twofold fulfillment of a prophecy. So it might be that you're reading a prophecy in Jeremiah or Isaiah or wherever, and you you can see something immediately in their context. And yet you see something even greater of a fulfillment of it as you start talking about Jesus and what Jesus will do. So in a sense, some people might like to use this verse, verse 14 here, to point to the restoration of God's people that happens under King Cyrus of Persia, that they get to return, that Babylon is destroyed and and Cyrus sends them home. Cyrus even pays to rebuild the temple for them. So some people might point to that, um, but it's not a full fulfillment in in that sense because you don't actually see a king put back on the throne of Israel for Israel. I mean, Cyrus remains their king. So Babylon is destroyed by Persia. So Cyrus is their king now. They, they're part of the Persian Empire. And then when, uh, I, I believe it's Alexander the Great conquers Persia, now he's their ruler. And then when he gets conquered or kind of falls apart, however you want to describe that, Rome steps in. And so you get to the New Testament age that we're more familiar with, and that's where they are. They're sitting under the rule of the Roman Empire They don't have their own king, and so they're still looking. I mean, the Jewish people are still looking at that point for this promise, this prophecy to be fulfilled. Right. This is this is an important thing that, and that's why it was helpful to read the matter of the Davidic line, because the last king of there in Jerusalem in 587 BC was a king named Zedekiah. And he got carried off into exile. He doesn't survive the exile. He never comes back to reign. As you mentioned, in 539, 538 BC, the Edict of Cyrus allows 
the people of Judah to start going back to their homeland, and some do, but they never really have the kingdom again. Certainly not like they had the kingdom under David and Solomon when it was united kingdom, not even the matter of the divided kingdom. When you had Israel in the north, you had Judah in the south. You never see that. Maybe the the closest that you get, you get this guy named Zerubbabel who comes about in the, in the post-exilic books of the Bible, and, and he's got some Davidic blood in him. And he kind of does some ruling of sorts, but never in the same sense of David, never in the same sense as of a king. You get that, that and this goes a little bit outside of the, of the Old Testament, into the part between the Testaments. You get that time in the Maccabean revolt in the 100s BC, where there's a hint of freedom for some of the descendants of Abraham there in Jerusalem, but it's, it's really only a hint of it. And there's never this, there's never this full restoration of the Davidic line, not in the sense that there was a throne in Jerusalem and there was a man who had David's ancestry sitting there ruling. That just, it just doesn't happen again, historically speaking, which, which I think invites just a moment of reflection as to, well, I'll say it, a wrong way to take this text. I've, I've had a couple of questions recently, both from this show and then in pastoral ministry, relating to I'm going to get this right. Dispensational premillennialism. That's a mouthful. I know. <laughs> but premillennial dispensation. Oh, I just said it backwards. Dispensational premillennialism would take this, would take a text like this and say, look, this text, these days that are coming are still coming. That, that somehow this promise hasn't actually been fulfilled because there is no literal king sitting on a throne in Jerusalem currently. And that's not what this text is talking about though, right, Pastor Andrews? I'll let you take it from there. Right. I mean, this is where the the Jewish people around the time of Jesus have gone wrong. So as you're as you read the New Testament, we see this again and again. What was their expectation for the Messiah who God had promised would come to them? Well, they're expecting a Messiah who is going to set up an earthly kingdom. They're expecting that he's going to overthrow the Roman Empire for them so that the, the people of Israel get to be their own nation again, and not just any nation, but restored to their former glory where the nations of the earth feared them. And we see that time and time again, even with the disciples, they don't get it. They, even on the day of the ascension, before Jesus ascends up into the heavens, and this is Acts chapter 1, I think it's verse Six, where the disciples asked the question, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he ends up giving them instead an entirely different mission, uh, which is, you know, certainly not our topic for the day, but to, you know, go and make disciples essentially of the world to, to take that gospel message everywhere. This, the kingdom that is coming and that this text is going to be really end up talking about is not a kingdom of this world. Um, and so you can see that. You can see from a text like this how the people got their misunderstanding um, as they, they hear that God is going to fulfill this promise. There are days coming where the, the kingdom of David is going to be restored for them. And, and then, yes, as you, you mentioned with, with dispensational premillennialism, uh, there's still this idea, and you'll hear this, right? As Christians, we hear of other Christians saying, well, we need to be concerned about what happens in Israel. We need to keep that city of Jerusalem or take the city of Jerusalem. We, we have to support the work of God in that region. And, and this is where it all comes down to. They believe that that earthly kingdom has to be restored. It has to be set up again. Now, as Christians today, do we care about the people that are in the Middle East right now? Sure, we care about them. They're our neighbor. And so we love them and serve them however we possibly can. But we don't have any investment, any interest in having a throne in Jerusalem. We want the throne that's in the new Jerusalem that has been promised to us in, in the book of Revelation. Yeah, that's right. It, the And I appreciate how you connected 
the error that's made by dispensational premillennialism with the error that was made by many in Jesus' day concerning this setting up of an earthly kingdom. I think that's a, that's a great insight. And as you said, what happens in that strip of land over on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in the Middle East is of no theological importance to us today. The Father is not waiting for something to happen in that strip of land in the city in Jerusalem before he sends Jesus. He's not waiting for anything other than the day that he has picked. That's what he's waiting for. And so that people would come to repentance. And and so the, the work of the church has nothing to do with setting up a throne in Jerusalem. But I think this, this is the Acts 1 connection. What is the work of the church? It is to be the witness to the kingdom that Jesus has set up, which I think is, is hopefully transitioning. We've talked a lot about what this verse isn't talking about. The days are coming. What is this verse talking about? Well, the, the days are coming when I will fulfill the promise that I made. So what promise did God make? Um, that's something we want to talk about. And that would be a reference to Second Samuel chapter 7. And we saw it here also in the, the text. It comes in the verses that followed what we, we have for our three verses of the day. But it's this promise that God has made that there will always be someone sitting on the throne of David. One of his descendants will sit on his throne forever. And that's what we look to with Jesus. And unlike the premillennial view um, of the, the end of time, we in, the, in our church bodies, we teach the idea of, we call it amillennialism, which A is the, the, it's alpha, the Greek letter that negates a word. Like we use un or non in front of English words. They put the letter A in front of it to basically make it a no or not. And we don't believe that there's a literal thousand years that we're waiting for something, but rather that that time period of Christ sitting on that throne is happening right now. We are in the midst of that reign of Jesus even now, um, even though it doesn't feel like it all the time, right? Christians suffer in this world. Christians are even killed in this world because they're Christian. And yet Jesus reigns and death is making its last and final throws, attempting to do something, who knows what, but it has already failed. It's been defeated. Christ sits on the throne. Christ reigns. And because he reigns, we reign with him. We, we know that from Scripture calling us co-heirs with Christ. Whatever Christ has, we have as part of his kingdom, as part of his family. So Jesus brings up that theme as he comes. You think of the first words that he speaks in, in the gospel accounts, like the book of Matthew in chapter 4. Um, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Well, what's that mean? Well, it means Jesus has brought his reign back into creation. And he's done it by his death and by his resurrection. Uh, and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah, the, the bringing of the reign of God is, is a huge theme in the Gospels. It fits nicely with what we talked about yesterday. Yesterday, we looked at Isaiah chapter 64, where the prophet prays, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. Well, the Lord has come down in Jesus to reign, and that is good news. And this is this isn't a minor matter to talk about either. I mean, when you when you look at what the Lord says following the text, again, verses 14 through 16, which we we read that following. I mean, the Lord said this promise is certain. This promise that he's making about there being a king of David's line who reigns forever, it is as certain as the sun coming up every morning and the sun going down every evening. The, the, the way he phrases, you know, if you could break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that they don't come and, and kind of you need to hear like, and you can't do that in the background. Right. Then also my covenant with David would be broken and you can't do that either. That's, that's the way the Lord is speaking. So it, it's important that we understand how the Lord fulfills this promise, lest anyone think that he's some kind of a liar, right? He's not a liar. He does keep this promise. It's just that he keeps it in Jesus, in the kingdom, the reign that he brings, which is not a reign in which a king sits on a throne in Jerusalem. It is a reign in which the king dies for his subjects, a reign in which the king lives and now reigns to all eternity. I mean, you know, we're, we're in the season of Advent here, 
and and think of what Gabriel says to Mary in the Annunciation. Uh, let's see. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Here we go. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Scripture very clearly declares to us that the days that are coming have been fulfilled. We're not waiting for someone to sit on a throne in Jerusalem. These days have been fulfilled in Jesus, who is the king in the line of David, who reigns forever. And, and that, I mean, we just, we have to know that so that we can have the full comfort of what God gives to us. I think we'll go ahead and take our break. Pastor Andrews, you're listening to Sharp Iron here on KFUO. We will be right back. Please stick around. Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233, 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Thursday, December 3rd. We're looking at Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. We've got Pastor Steve Andrews with us. He serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri. Pastor Andrews, prior to the break, we, we were talking about the days are coming, and we, we've looked at how those days have come in Jesus Christ, in the ministry that he brings, as he brings the rule and the reign of God to us here to be our Savior. So the days are coming refers to that. Is there more there in those words, the days are coming? Well, as we look at this in our where it's getting used in the liturgical calendar, it's the first reading and in year C, the third year of the rotation, of first reading that that season of Advent together, which is Christians when we celebrate Advent. What what are we celebrating? And and Advent, I believe, is the Latin word for come. And so are we celebrating the coming of Jesus at Christmas? Is that what we're looking forward to? Or are we looking forward to the coming of Christ when he returns at his second coming? Um, and then even as we look at the context of where you would hear this Old Testament reading in your church service, the gospels that day, and I say gospels because your pastor is given the choice of two different texts that he can go with. And the one is a, a text that points you to Jesus' triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem whereas the other one is the second coming of Jesus Christ. So, yeah, there's this, <laughs> when are these days that are coming? And we know that they're fulfilled in Jesus, but it's almost like a, almost a, a full package. You almost answer that question of which coming of Jesus is Advent about by saying, yes, it's about, yes, it's about both. Um, it's That's about right. all of this. <laughs> so, right. It's it's an interesting conversation to have, and you can focus on any of those aspects. So, is is the reign of Christ established at Christmas? Well, in a way, yes. It's when Christ first. Well, we could talk about the incarnation there too, but it's when Christ first breaks into His creation to bring about the restored kingdom. Is the reign of Christ uh, accomplished during Holy Week as Christ enters into the city of Jerusalem? Well, sure. As He goes to the cross, He conquers all sin. As He rises from the dead on Easter morning, He overcomes even death for us. Um, that's wondrous victory or we then talk about the second coming of christ when he's going to come back whenever the last day is only he knows um, but when he returns uh, then we get this new heaven this new earth this new jerusalem which in revelation is a, a reference to the church to, to the bride of christ and so all of these things are this picture of christ reigning over his creation and caring for his creation which he has created and he loves so it's yeah, probably go with yes. <laughs> well, and and even and even within that, 
how Christ still comes today and how he still reigns today in the preaching of his word. To go back to that Acts 1 reference that you made, when the apostles are asking, Lord, are you going to bring the kingdom now? And he says, look, you're asking the wrong question. Probably you're going to be my witnesses. Right. And, but in that, in that witnessing, in that preaching, the kingdom of God still comes today. Jesus directs us in the Lord's prayer to pray thy kingdom come, which is a, I mean, is a prayer for, for all of these things. I mean, we're not praying for the first coming of Christ because that has happened, but in that prayer, thy kingdom come, we're asking God to bring his kingdom to us now in the preaching of his word to, to keep us as members of his reign here in the church and also to, to speed his coming on the last day, to bring the kingdom in fullness when we see it, when we are raised and, and we are living in the fullness of eternal life. I mean, all of, so I guess the days are coming. Yes, they have come in the first coming of Christ. They are coming still today and they will come on the last day when when Christ returns. But but the key in all of this is it's all centered in what God is doing in his son Jesus Christ. That is is where all of that ties together. And I'm the season of advent is perfect for that because it it blends all of that or or fills our our lives with those themes of Christ coming to us in the that variety of ways. Yeah, and so, we, we could even talk about the sacraments in that as Christ comes yeah. to us through baptism or as Christ comes to us, you know, weekly as our churches gather around his body and blood and the Lord's Supper. So, yeah, it's all about Jesus. That might have sure, been the exactly. motto of our church body for a while. Yeah, I think so. I think so. <laughs> right. Well, and I mean, even, you know, the sacraments, What you, you brought up Palm Sunday in Advent, and we hear Palm Sunday every week when we sing the Sanctus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, right before the sacrament of the altar. So so the days are coming. We're, we're living in them right now in that sense. Oh, Pastor Andrews, there's so much just in those few few words. Yeah, we're still in we the first make, verse. That's right. We're still <laughs> in the first verse. Let's, let's move toward this image that Jeremiah brings up. He talks about he's going to fulfill the promise. The Lord will fulfill the promise he made to the house of Israel, the house of Judah, that this king is going to be sitting on the throne of David forever. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. So this is this is a picture. We need to see the image here. What is the picture of the righteous branch springing up for David? I think when we hear that word branch, we're tempted to think about a tree that's already strong and, and, and healthy. And so you think of a, I don't know, I think of a branch. I think of taking a walk through a, on a hike with my kids and my daughter picks up this large tree branch that's laying on the ground because it broke off. Uh, that's probably not the picture that we want to have with this. In fact, the Hebrew Hebrew word for it literally would be a shoot or a growth that's coming off of something. And I think the picture we get out of Isaiah and I, I think that's coming up a couple of days from now on the show. Uh, Isaiah's picture of this is you get the, really the shoot is coming up out of the stump of Jesse. So the stump of Jesse is an important term there. You think of a tree that got cut down. God has cut down the tree that is the house of his people because of their unfaithfulness. They have been cut down. They've been removed. They're gone. And yet from that stump comes new life. And I think that's probably a picture that most of us have seen before as you think of a stump in somebody's yard and you start to see something green poking its head out of the, out of the dead. Uh, that's, that's what Jesus is. He is the, the new life that comes up out of nothing. The line of David has essentially, for all intents and purposes, it's been wiped out. It's been destroyed. And yet here is this child of David. Here's this son of David who comes up. And he not only, you know, makes his appearance, he not only pokes up as a little shoot coming out of the tree, he grows into a whole new tree. And he grows the the plant all over again. Jesus has restored the kingdom of God. And this Old Testament church that that fell has now been replaced in a way, uh, we would say, by this New Testament church. Um as we have been called to be the children of, of God. We are, we are now part of that tree. Um, Christ himself is the tree, and, and he's the one that gives us the life to sustain us. Right, yeah. So the, the image is, is this new growth out of death. And, and you're right. This is an image that I think 
many of us have seen of a of a what looks like a dead tree suddenly sprouting new new growth. I mean, sometimes even the stump might be all the way underneath the ground. It's, it's been ground down. You can't even see it. And you'll still see these, you know, the branches start to come up. The the shoots start to come up. Those those trees appear to be dead. They're apparently not. But, but here, the image, I mean, this is a dead tree. This is a stump to use Isaiah's language, which we will look at in a couple of days. And yet the Lord brings new life. This is, I mean, he's in the business of doing this, of bringing life out of death. He's, he's always doing this. And, and so Jesus, again, is the, the fulfillment of this. He's this righteous branch who springs up for David. Particularly here, the descriptor is important. The Lord says he will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Take us into that word righteous. Well, to be righteous, I mean, we can shorten that in English. The word right is, so to be righteous is to be perfect. It's to do things right in the eyes of the Lord. And this is, the, the way I phrase that is something that you would see often as you read through the books of Kings. Each of the kings of either Israel or Judah has that descriptor attached to them. They either did right in the eyes of Yahweh or they did evil in the eyes of Yahweh as they followed in the uh, the the sins of their forefathers. I don't remember exactly how that got phrased. Um, but here we then have not an evil king who's coming to reign over the the kingdom of Israel. No, this is this is going to be a righteous king. This is going to be one who truly does what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And so that's a that's a, a bit of a hint from Jeremiah, I guess more than a hint, but I mean, you know, it's a prophecy of what's coming. This is going to be a perfect one who will have no fault in him, no blamelessness, no no blame in him, sorry. Um, and we know, as we have seen this play out in hindsight, that as Jesus, he does this. He keeps the law perfectly. There is no sin that is found in him whatsoever. And then he, he focuses not on his own will, per se, as we think of the Garden of Gethsemane as he prays on Maundy Thursday, but his focus is on the will of the Father. And that is the thing that is good and right. He teaches us uh, the, in the Lord's Prayer, as you mentioned earlier, in the prayer, he teaches us to focus not on our own will, but on on God the Father's will as well. And so Jesus does that even to the point of laying down his life, giving up his own life for this family that he has come to bring and restore to himself again. Hmm. I appreciate you bringing out what the book of Kings often does when it talks about the Kings that, you know, they either did evil or did what was right in the, if in the Northern kingdom, in the kingdom of Israel, they all do what's evil because they follow after the sin of Jeroboam and in following the idols that he established at the very beginning of that kingdom. Yes. In the Southern kingdom, you, you do have some who do what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And they do what is right in the eyes of the Lord because they follow after the way of their father, David. They always get compared back to David. But even he, we know, was a sinner. He confesses it in the Psalms. Psalm 51 particularly comes to mind. Even the other kings who did what was right in the line of David were sinners. You can think through Hezekiah, for example, or Josiah, as good of a king's as they were, still they were sinners and they had their faults as well. This righteous branch that comes from the line of David, he is blameless, he is sinless, and he follows the Father's will, as you said, all the way into death for the sake of us sinners. So he is he is the righteous branch from David's line. He is the king of all kings. He will be David's son and yet David's Lord, as the Psalms teach us. And and as he reigns, then, the way that Jeremiah describes it, he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. What does that mean? That phrase can be taken either negatively or positively, um, and scripture uses it both ways. So in the negative sense, it's a, it's a statement of judgment. Um, we see this, for example, we saw it in our, our lectionary a few weeks ago in our church services from Amos chapter 5. Um, you read that God is going to pour out justice and righteousness, and that was not a reference to God doing something that we would say is positive for his people in a sense. It was it was the idea that he was going to pour out his wrath. He was going to pour out his judgment on the wicked. And so, yes, justice and, and righteousness from Jesus can be that. I mean, we do know he is the judge and he is the righteous judge. Um, 
But on the other side of this, from a positive perspective, we can also look at the idea that Jesus will execute justice and righteousness in the land as the idea that he is thwarting evil within the creation. He is caring for his people who are in need. So we were, uh, we were suffering in, in the hands of sin and death and the devil. And so Jesus is executing justice against our sin. He is executing justice against our death, and he is executing justice against the devil himself um, to the point where the devil is is cast into the, the lake of fire um, and to the point where death is the last enemy put under Christ's feet and our sins, as we know well, have been forgiven uh, on the cross. Yeah, I mean, like the cross is exactly where we, we need to look for the matter of justice and righteousness being executed, because that is where God does justice against our sins. He punishes Christ in our stead. He puts God, God puts our sins on Christ, and he punishes Christ in our place. Their justice truly is done, and it's done for you, for sinners. And that's the the gospel. That's the beauty of it, is that this righteous branch, again, as you said, follows the Father's will into death so that righteousness and justice can be done, so that sinners will be welcomed into this eternal kingdom of Christ. And I mean, that's that's the beauty of this executing of, of justice and righteousness. Now, when when we tell God, no, thanks, I don't want that. I'd rather you execute justice on me for what I've done. Well, then, as you said, you get the terror of the book of Amos or, or the prophet Zephaniah similarly, or what Jesus says in Matthew 25, where he, he pictures the last judgment there. When, when you ask God to judge you on your own account, he will. And, and that judgment ends in condemnation. But when you receive the free gift that he gives in Christ, the justice that's already be, been done, and now the righteousness in him that will cover you, uh, then that that justice, that justification, that is a, a precious gift. And I, I, think, I think that really helps us into verse 16. So again, Jeremiah writes, in those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. I'll let you talk about the first part of that verse briefly, at least. I think we've covered a bunch of it. You've got in those days again, and it says Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell securely. We've already established we're not talking about that strip of land over there on the Mediterranean coast in the Middle East. What are we talking about with Judah being saved and Jerusalem dwelling securely? Right. I mean, again, you can see how both the Jews at the time of Christ and also, again, our, our dispensationalist, premillennialist brothers and sisters in Christ might get this wrong. Um, Jerusalem definitely was not dwelling securely when Christ visited it, nor was it secure when he was killed in it, uh, nor was it secure in the years that followed that. I mean, it's not, I don't know, what is it, like 40 to 50 years after the the death of Christ on the cross that Jerusalem is entirely destroyed. Rome just comes and levels it and, and tears down the temple too. Um, so for this prophecy, as we look for what is Judah, what is Jerusalem that is, well, Judah to be saved and Jerusalem to be secure. We're looking again at that picture of Revelation 21, that new Jerusalem, that holy city, which in verse nine of that chapter is, is described as being the bride of Christ. The angel says to John, I will show you um, the new I will show you the bride, and then he shows him the city. And that's how we make that connection. So in Christ, we are the bride of Christ. And in Christ, we as the church, we dwell securely in the paradise of God forevermore. Right. So Judah and Jerusalem, this is referring to the church. And particularly, Judah will be saved. This is what the name Jesus actually means, right? Right. I mean, so again, that false idea of what the Messiah would do, what's the first thing, one of the, well, maybe one of the first things we learn about our Messiah as the angel comes and speaks to Joseph in Matthew chapter one, he says, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And so Jesus, the name simply means he saves. So it's Yeshua or Joshua in Hebrew, it's Jesus in Greek. Um, same name that comes through. And 
It's so specific, right? He will save his people from their sins. He's not going to save his people from the Roman Empire. Uh, We don't even see that. Rome had its evils, and we never see Jesus address those. He came to save us, period. He knows what what ails us. He knows ultimately what, what is the kingdom of this world and what is his own kingdom, and that's where his focus lies. And so Jesus saves us precisely the way we need to be saved. The text that we've got today concludes, this is the name by which it will be called, again, the the righteous branch, the Lord is our righteousness. Take us into that name, the Lord is our righteousness. Again, the Lord, so Yahweh in the Hebrew, uh, and then the righteousness phrase showing up again, So Yahweh is our righteousness. We know this is true in the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, you might think of a Bible verse that we have. So let's see, for example, Romans chapter 13, it's verse 14. Paul wrote, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So we've learned as Christians today from scripture that we put on Jesus. And so as we hear Yahweh is our righteousness, we are, we put on Christ. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And we, we do, we have a theological phrase for that. We call it imputed righteousness. Um, but maybe a, a helpful image for, for people to consider this with is, is that of a chalkboard, or I guess you could use a white erase board. It doesn't really make a difference. Um, and I do this when I teach um, either a Bible class or a confirmation class, I will give, I'll give the class the opportunity. I'll just take the marker of chalk. I'll go up to the board. Okay, name off some sins. And I start filling the board with all the different sins that they're naming off. And it's not hard. It really is not hard to fill a board with our sins. Uh, easy to do. Sometimes we make the the mistake of looking at Jesus and what Jesus has done for us as simply being the eraser. So we talk about forgiveness and we take the, the eraser and we, we wipe the board clean. All of our sins have been taken away from us. They're not there anymore. But what happens next? Is that it? And, and the class is always good about picking up on this. If that's it, what happens next? And they're, they're pretty quick to answer and say, I guess we, we fill it up again. And if we're left to our own devices, if forgiveness is just a removal of our sins, we're just going to fill it back up with sin again. And so this imputed righteousness idea then of Jesus is that not only does his forgiveness wipe our board clean, but he then fills the board with himself. And so I'll, I'll take the, I usually take the Cairo, the the symbol of the church for Jesus. Uh, and I'll put that up on the board. It's the one that looks like a, a P and it has the X through it. Um, those are the first two letters of the name Christ, Christos in the Greek language. Um, or you could write Christ or however you want to fill that board then. Um, but the picture is, is that we have been filled with his righteousness, his perfection. And this is a gift that he has done for us, that he has given to us. This is very important to understand. There's a, a, a dearly uh, beloved pastor in our by circuit here, Pastor Al Leshman, who's retired, but he comes to our circuit meetings. And he, he loves to emphasize this in our conversations, that it's, it's not just the forgiveness of sins, the wiping away, the taking away. That is part of it. We're not, we're not denying that. But right. it is also the giving of Christ's righteousness. Because, and, and the image that you've got there is, is fantastic of, of a chalkboard being erased. Well, if, if that's it, what am I going to do? I'm going to fill it up with my sins again. Or uh, the image of clothing is one that the scriptures use on a regular basis. The idea, of, as you read from Romans 13, putting on Christ, that I would... In baptism, my old sinful nature is taken off of me, and he bestows upon me this new righteousness of Christ, this perfection and holiness because of what he has done for me. And that covers me, that fills my chalkboard, to mix the metaphors, with all of his righteousness. And that's what God sees. He sees the righteousness of Christ when he looks at me, and that's mine by faith. 
through faith. That is how God gives it to me. But it, it is that that positive giving of Christ's righteousness. The Lord is our righteousness. This, I think, is, is a part of what, what Luther realized in his realization of the gospel, that the righteousness of God is the gift that he gives to you in Christ. He's taken your sins away. Another image, the idea of a, of a great exchange, that my sins go on Christ. That's the forgiveness. But it is also that his righteousness goes upon me. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul talks about this, that, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we would be the righteousness of God. There's that great exchange. It's not just the taking away, but it is the bestowing, the, the to use the theological term, the imputing of Christ's righteousness upon us. And so when God looks at us, that's who he sees. He sees the holiness of Christ. Oh, what what wonderful gospel. Pastor Andrew, we've got about two minutes here to, to sum things up, to wrap things up for us on Jeremiah 33 this morning. Oh, I mean, it really ends up being that that wonderful gospel um, as you were just describing it and, and laying it out for us. The great exchange. I mean, it sounds like a bad trade, doesn't it? It sounds like a great trade from our perspective, but in the end, what does what does the Lord get? Well, the Lord gets a bride. I mean, he, he has called us to be his own people. And he has chosen us. I may not in this life be able to tell you why he's chosen me to be part of his family, but he has. And he has done it all for me. As as the covenant we described at the beginning, the idea that just as the you know, God's covenant with day and night cannot be overcome, nor could this covenant that he has made with David. And that's such a comfort to know that there is nothing, nothing that I can do. Uh, to to break these promises of God, that God is faithful and God keeps his word to us. Paul ends up writing that way in Romans, right? Uh, the idea that nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We are his. His righteousness is now ours. Uh, forgiveness is not a second chance. If, if it were a second chance, we, we, wouldn't, we wouldn't make it. Uh, forgiveness is a claiming of us as his own. And it's such a, a, a wondrous gift that it, it's hard to even really begin to describe just how beautiful it is. When we come before his judgment throne, he does not see our sin. He sees the beauty and the splendor of his own son. And so you and I and, and all those who trust in Christ, who have faith in Christ, we get to live forever uh, together with him in his paradise. Pastor Steve Andrews serves at St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Lee's Summit, Missouri, helping us this morning with Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. Pastor Andrews, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you as well. Christ's righteousness has been given to you. He has taken your sins, and your you are now covered with his righteousness so that when God looks at you, that is who he sees, his beloved child. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.